Merry Christmas, nasty pasty listeners. Yes, it's your favourite insufferable know-it-all, and no, I'm not Hermione Granger. It's Andy Roberts, and by heck, it's been a bloody long time, hasn't it? I thought I'd hung up my podcasting headphones for good, but here we are. I decided to revive this crusty old bit of offal pastry and come back for a series of minisodes in the same vein as my main show when it officially ended a few months ago. Still, I got into the spirit of Christmas and thought, why not run a couple off just for one last time, eh? Still, it's not going to be exactly like how it was. For one, I'm still working on my book, which I seem to have been writing for years, unfortunately. I've sadly not made too much progress as life's got in the way. Namely, I became a foster carer with my fiancé Alex, and we're awaiting the arrival of three children at some point in the first quarter of next year. So, there's a lot of paperwork to complete and a lot of home to adapt. Not only that, but we moved into a new house, and gasp horror, my countless collection of DVDs and Blu-rays was packed away in the garage, seemingly never to see the light of day again. Until a few days ago, that is. So yes, folks, life's basically caught up to me, and I've been away from the horror world for a while. Still, it's never too late to stoke up those coals of passion again, and so I'm igniting Nasty Pasty for several new minisodes, as explained before. These are not going to be as frequent. I somehow managed to watch two films weekly for a very long time, and that's simply not possible at the moment, nor do I actually want to. I love horror, but I need a more slower, measured schedule right now. There's also no dates on these new ones for the same reasons. I need the flexibility at the moment, so I will push these out when I can. But enough of that, let's refresh everyone's memory. Nasty Pasty is named so because of the so-called Video Nasties, which I became fascinated with around the age of 16 or 17. Now at the grand old age of 28, I've seen pretty much all of these supposedly depraved and corrupting violent films, and I have to say, I wasn't too impressed. While admittedly some of them were fairly nasty, a great deal of them were just not so impressive and seemed a bit random in their selection. And this only increased when the amazing guys at Nucleus Films did those two documentaries on the Videos Nasties list and the supplementary Section 3 list. Just what exactly caused the people in power to choose these specific titles? That's where the Nasty Pasty picks up the slack, looking at films outside of the lists which could compare to the infamous band titles, either in similar crews and directors, equally violent scenes, or just similar genres to those Forbidden Fruits themselves. It's been a journey and a half, but I think ultimately, I concluded that there were so many other titles that could have been on the nasties list, had the police or politicians been aware of them, simply by judging them on the same tenuous criteria. Anyhow, this new series of minisodes will be doing exactly the same routine, only the titles I've chosen are specifically going to be a lot more obscure than usual. And since it's Christmas, I thought I'd go for a film that I've been seeking out for a while – 1972's Home for the Holidays, a TV movie which uncannily showcases a lot of the slasher tropes that became popular with the genre-defining Black Christmas and Halloween. As a bonus, it's a festive movie, so we can all settle down this holiday season and be merry. So without further delay, let's talk about Home for the Holidays.
On Christmas Eve, devoted daughter Alex Morgan trims the Christmas tree and tends to her ailing father Benjamin, who's noticeably suspicious of his wife Elizabeth, especially as Alex is leaving soon to pick up her sisters. On her way to the airport, Alex chats with local doctor Ted, who mentions an event that caused the Morgan sisters to leave town almost ten years ago. As night falls, Alex returns with her sisters Joanna, Christine and Frederica, known colloquially as Joe, Chris and Freddy. Joe is openly negative about the return, prompting Alex to reveal their father believes Elizabeth is poisoning him and it's not the first time that she's been accused of such. Upon entering the home, the sisters are met by stepmother Elizabeth, whom they've not met before, and who tentatively implores them to see their father before leaving them to it. Her appearance causes Freddy some distress, who talks about their mother's suicide and how she blames their father for it. Going in to see Benjamin, their reception is somewhat frosty, as he brings up Freddy's addiction to alcohol and pills, as well as Joe's promiscuity and frequent marriages. He does, however, gently credit Chris for her attendance of school, and notes that she was very young when she left. When Chris notices Elizabeth heading off to the barn in a yellow Mac, Benjamin begs the girls to believe him about the poisonings, since she was accused of killing her first husband the same way. When Joe asks what they're supposed to do, Benjamin suggests the girls kill her to save his life. The girls are confused by the request, with Chris going to get a coffee for Freddy to calm her down. In the kitchen, Elizabeth is cooking Christmas dinner, and talks with Chris about Freddy's condition. Upstairs, Chris speaks with Freddy, who is visibly upset about the reminders of their mother, and she begins to drink spirits in order to cope. Downstairs, all the sisters except Freddy gather in the dining room for Christmas dinner with Elizabeth, when Joe steers the conversation towards murder to bait her stepmother, who openly discusses the pain that she suffered from the townspeople's accusations and her admittance into an insane asylum after her acquittal. The dinner is interrupted by a scream from upstairs, revealed to be a heavily intoxicated Freddy, who's cut herself on broken glass during a drunken reminisce about their mother. Joe, frustrated by the night's events, collects her things and disavows herself of the family crisis, explaining to Alex that she no longer cares whether their father lives or dies. After failing to say goodbye to a catatonic Freddy, Joe bids Chris swear farewell and heads to the car parked in the barn, unaware that a figure in red boots and gloves, a yellow Macintosh, and holding a pitchfork, is staring at her. After realising the keys are missing, Joe exits and is suddenly impaled through the chest by the killer, who drags her body quickly away. The next day on Christmas morning, Ted arrives at the door to wish the family a Merry Christmas, gifting Chris with a pendant necklace. Chris becomes concerned about the poison accusation and confides in Ted, only to be told that Elizabeth called him to disprove this, only to have Benjamin throw him out. Later that evening, Chris suggests to Alex that Elizabeth may be innocent, only to provoke laughter from Alex, who believes that she's being too naive. She also finds that the telephone is offline, supposedly from the storm, which has not so far ceased. Elizabeth makes a mug of warm milk and honey, and in a kind gesture gives it to Freddy, who is still drinking alcohol. Later, Freddy takes a bath and drifts off into a drunken slumber from the copious drinking, only for the killer to appear, gently pulling her feet so that her head slips under the water, drowning and killing her. Chris discovers the body the next morning, causing Benjamin and Alex to suspect Elizabeth, especially due to the absence of any pills in Freddy's bathroom or the mug with milk and honey gone missing. Now with the family stranded due to the road's flooding, the tension increases in the house, too much for Chris to bear. After Alex explains that Elizabeth must be trying to kill them to gain the entirety of Benjamin's inheritance, 
Chris suggests that he try and reach the house of Mrs Killian, the Morgan's housekeeper who is ill at home, to try and reach help. Not listening to Alex's concerns, Chris ventures out into the rain, travelling through the woods which she's familiar with. But after getting far out, she becomes aware that she's being followed by someone, revealed to be the killer holding the pitchfork again. Managing to hide under a log, Chris waits for the killer to walk away, but the mysterious figure waits by the log for a while before eventually wandering off. Back at the house, Alex spots Elizabeth walking outside wearing the yellow mac. Whilst in the woods, Chris abandons her plan and returns to the house, where she finds Alex's car still parked, and due to fatigue, she trips near the barn door and falls into mud, where she discovers to her horror Joanne's corpse poking out from underneath. While screaming, Elizabeth appears, causing Chris to run off in terror back to the house and barricading herself in, noticing that the lights are all off, with Alex missing. Elizabeth enters the house through the basement, while Chris hides in a closet. Her stepmother eventually checks outside, so Chris emerges and sneaks through the house and reaches the study where her father lies. Checking on him, Chris calls out for her father, only for Elizabeth to surprise her by informing her that he's dead. Screaming, Chris flees out into the rain and soon encounters Alex driving past her in a car. Flagging her down, Chris tries to explain the situation, only for Alex to coldly state that Elizabeth didn't kill anyone. It was, in fact, Alex herself, unable to free herself of the family emotionally or physically unless they were all dead. She strikes Chris with a tyre iron, sending her tumbling down a steep hill and hitting the base, knocking her unconscious. Before Alex can check on her, Ted arrives on the scene where Alex feigns trauma and explains about all the deaths. After convincing him to look for Chris, Alex drives to the sheriff's and brings them to the mansion, with it now being morning. Feeling smug, she brings the police upstairs as Elizabeth looks on, only for Ted to reveal that he found Chris and has put her in a bedroom. Feigning grief, Alex checks on her sister, only for Chris to open her eyes, resulting in Alex screaming and laughing maniacally, now understanding that her plan has failed. Alex is escorted off the premises by the police, turning and looking at her sister's tear-filled face one last time before she's driven to jail. Elizabeth embraces the injured Chris and assists her with her bags as she decides to leave with Ted as the film ends. Hello, Christine. I came to get a cup of coffee. It's for Freddy. Well, let me fix it for you. Sit by the stove. This weather chills right through the walls. Please. Does Mrs. Killian still work for my father? Yes. Yes, but she's been ill. She cooked up the basics of a Christmas Eve dinner last night. She kind of expected she wouldn't be well enough to come in today. How she walks through those boards, even when she's feeling her best, I'll never know. They scare me to death. I've got dinner in the oven, but it'll be a good while before it's ready. There's some nice cheese if you need something to hold you. No, thank you. I'll just get Freddie her coffee. She's not feeling very well. Yes. I understand from your father that she also takes pills. If that's the case, she shouldn't be drinking so much alcohol. 
She shouldn't be drinking any at all. It's heartbreaking. A girl so beautiful and so young. I overheard Alex telling your father that Frederica's never gotten over your mother's death. What it's done to her. Does Frederica still blame your father for your mother's death? I think so. Yes. Most of us can never accept the terrible fact of suicide. But I suppose drinking a little too much is better than going a little too mad, as I did. Your coffee's ready. Way before Black Christmas had set up the template, way before Halloween had mastered the template, and definitely way before Friday the 13th catapulted the template into popular culture, the slasher film was ambling somewhere between many genres, most notably those of the Italian thriller, the giallo, and the splatter film, ushered in by grindhouse classics like the work of Herschel Gordon Lewis. After Mario Barva's Bay of Blood in 1971, there were a few notable proto-slashes, if you will, such as Blood and Lace from the same year, or Savage Weekend from 1976. But one of the more unique, niche and obscure of these is John Llewellyn Moxie's Home for the Holidays, a Christmas-themed TV movie that really showcases some of those yuletide slasher elements that would be present in Bob Clark's seasonal chiller, Black Christmas, just two years later. The TV movie was in development from early 1972, with the script written in May of 1972 by Joseph Stefano, quite famous for his work on the screenplay for Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho in 1960. Originally titled A Christmas Tale of Terror, the script differed somewhat from what ended up in the final film, which was, by the way, actually intended to be a full theatrical release, until budgetary constraints consigned it to the television circuit. Just before I describe the original screenplay, though, I have to give a huge thanks to Joe Vuolo, who got in touch when I mentioned that I was covering this movie, as he'd actually seen the screenplay and wrote a great post for the Eleanor Parker Archive, which is on Facebook. So, really, thank you so much, Joe. Set against the backdrop of snow-covered New England, the Morgan family were originally called the Dune family, headed up by Reuben rather than Benjamin. Dr. Ted Lindsay was actually Dr. Teddy Berlin, an older eccentric who used a sleigh at Christmas time, whilst Sheriff Nolan also makes an appearance early in the film rather than just at the conclusion. Mrs. Killian's daughters, Cassie and Ellie, actually appeared in the film's beginning, serving Christmas cider to the house guests, and there's news of a large blizzard incoming as well. Freddie had her own backstory, including her husband killing himself, and notably not leaving a message for her, driving her to drink and pill-popping as she suspects one of her sisters had destroyed it. The Christmas dinner scene was much more revealing, indicating that Elizabeth, known as Mrs Meech in the screenplay, was actually suspected of killing five people with poison, and had the townspeople making up rhymes about her. When the killer does arrive, they're described as wearing a bright red sweater, rather than the yellow mac and Joe's death focuses on her collar clasp, which breaks off with the sound of pitchfork stabbings in the background. Freddie's death is originally accidental when she chokes on her own vomit, but this was changed for the final film, while the chase scene between Chris and the killer is expanded due to the presence of snow, whereby trees begin to collapse due to the intense cold, and Chris is knocked unconscious by the ensuing chaos. The killer actually leaves her like this, assuming that the cold will finish her off. Mrs Killian, the housekeeper, and her daughters Cassie and Ellie are given some screen time to paint them as red herrings. 
In the original script, Reuben has purposely been suffocated, while Mrs. Meech specifically shouts at Chris during the chase sequences that Alex is the one to watch out for. The subsequent reveal of Alex as the killer has her lunging at Chris with a bread knife instead of a tire iron, but the film's ending originally omitted Alex going insane upon realising that Chris is alive. Instead, she simply looks elated upon being driven off to jail, finally free of her family. There's also more subtle hints to her madness, as her car is revealed to be a gift from Freddy's husband, indicating that she may have indeed destroyed his suicide note to cover up an affair that she may have been having. Certainly from the huge amount of material that was either toned down or omitted completely, it can truly be said that Home for the Holidays started out as a very ambitious project. Understandably so, considering it was envisioned as a full theatrical motion picture, rather than for television. But due to the new format and the significantly lowered budget, concessions had to be made. A large number of the subplots were excised, most notably that of the Killian family, which were all but removed from the final version, with only a few fleeting mentions by the other characters. The backstories of the sisters were cut back to only minor references, and a supposed past love interaction between Alex and Ted was also removed. The characters' names were all routinely altered, the death scenes were also changed slightly to focus more on the killer's mysterious identity, and most notable of all, the snowy landscape was repurposed as a heavy flood of rainfall, presumably due to the expensiveness of snow effects that couldn't be realised with the production's reduced coffers. Still, as a minor note, those of us in Britain would actually probably find this element to be a lot more relatable. Snow is very seldom present at Christmas here, and rain is much more likely in the UK winters. The rain was achieved using a fire hose, which explains the infrequent mismatch of clear skies and torrential downpour. But apart from these minor setbacks with production, however, Home for the Holidays remains a very sleek, well-acted, and oftentimes dramatically tense piece of horror filmmaking. We'll first talk about the plot, which manages to combine all of the best elements of American gothic horror, such as the large imposing and sinister house, populated by bitter siblings who both subtly and unsubtly argue over an inheritance. Plots of murder, hints of madness, and a truly dark take on the spirit of Christmas all mash together to make a really intriguing film. Any horror fans viewing this will obviously make the parallels to the slasher subgenre, there's a gathering of victims, all with different motivations and reasons for being badly behaved. We have our killer, donned in a near-iconic garb of a yellow Macintosh and prismatically red wellies and gloves, in a precursory influence to images like the little red-coated girl of Don't Look Now, or the yellow Mac of the slasher in Alice Sweet Alice, both released just a few years later. We even have the obligatory chase sequences between Sally Field's Chris and the pitchfork-wielding maniac, which bear a striking resemblance to a similar sequence later done in Don Gronquist's Unhinged, even down to the killer's and victim's attire. What it does lack, however, is the adherence to the formula. The slasher film template was still as yet unknown, so Home for the Holidays has the ability to ignore the traditional routines and twist according to the writer's whim. It certainly bears more than a passing resemblance to the Italian Giallo as a result, with constant plot revelations, red herrings, and ambiguous character performances that really keep you guessing. Another departure from the expected slasher tropes is the de-emphasis on a body count and gore, but in true John Carpenter style, John Llewellyn Moxie proves you don't have to have an excess of plasma to keep the viewer entertained. The performances, the well-written web of deception and drama, and the emphasis on suspicion, mood and atmosphere, really serves this yuletide horror for the better. 
As murder mysteries go, Home for the Holidays does do quite well to avert your suspicion from one character to the other. Each character has their own flaws and endearments, and due to the really decent acting chops on show, they feel human and the story feels grounded and plausible as a result. With the exception of the unlikable Benjamin and the knight in shining armour character Ted, the cast is primarily made up of women, and strong women at that. Alex is the first character we see, quite dutifully trimming the Morgan family tree with decorations. She's established as a concerned, reliable mother hen figure, looking out for the welfare of her sisters and her father, despite his curmudgeonly grumblings at his situation and the way that his daughters have treated him. Though the other sisters are more open about their disdain for their father, Alex is always quick to soothe the still raw wounds left by their father's behaviour, but she also indulges the seemingly universal mirth that their siblings bear for Elizabeth. Since Alex is revealed to be the killer, we'll talk a little bit more about her motivations later, but for the majority of the film the suspicion is almost unilaterally aimed at Elizabeth, from her suspect movements around the house, Benjamin's ceaseless accusations that she's poisoning him, and the fact that her murky past is frequently dredged up by the more spiteful Joe. She's one of the more powerful characters here, since she's played with such subtle markers that make it very difficult to distinguish whether she's genuine or sinister. She explains that her past is indeed fraught with suspicion, but she seems to indicate that she's been wronged, and at least from a drama point of view, she's hard to place. Unfortunately, as a result of many a Jallo and slasher film viewing, she's a little too obvious to be the actual killer. She's set up as the sole focus of the suspicion of both the film's structure and the sisters' motivations, but those of us who are used to this sort of thing can smell a red herring a mile away. And unfortunately, most people will approach this film retrospectively like I have, and will undoubtedly notice the gargantuan crimson fish that eviscerates your face whenever she's on screen. One of the more notable qualities that she has is that she soldiers on regardless of her personal circumstances. She's clearly married to a man who despises her, the whole town ostracises her due to rumours, and her stepdaughters eye her up with suspicion and malice. Yet, she continues to maintain the house, feeding her husband, making warm milk and honey for people who don't like her, and even cooking the traditional Christmas lunch without any aid. She's ever the dutiful wife, but there's a real sadness to these actions. There's a particular line which we'll return to later, but overall, the audience is pulled in both directions by the character. She is suspicious, to be sure, wandering around the grounds, wearing the offending Macintosh and gloves, and with a chequered past that most DBS checks would find interesting. But she seems so resolute, so quietly tender and dying to say more than she allows herself, that it's really hard to place her. She certainly seems to adopt an almost maternal role for the young Chris, who is far too young to develop hatred towards either her father or stepmother, and is notably the only one of the sisters to give her the benefit of the doubt. Chris herself as a character is clearly final girl material, even at this early stage in films. She's headstrong, innocent, and tries to see the positive in the dire Morgan family scenario, enough to risk her safety to attempt to reach a neighbour's house in dangerous weather due to the feeling of impending doom. She even has a brief and respectful budding romance with the Ted character, whom she had a crush on in her younger years, and she's also the only sister who does not elicit a negative response from Benjamin, who instead praises her intelligence and her strong will. The few scenes that she shares with Elizabeth are incredibly effective, and Sally Field really portrays the immense familial pressure that she's under to hate the woman, but she's ultimately unable to, leading to Alex to brand her as naive. Still, she portrays a great girl in peril, and she can belt out some great screaming when required. In fact, it's possible that Friday the 13th director Sean S. Cunningham may have spotted this gem on TV, 
since he was most anxious to cast Field in the role of final girl Alice Hardy. Still, it was not to be, but it would have been fascinating to see Sally Field in a Friday movie. Freddy, played by Arrested Development stalwart Jessica Walter, is played with a very palpable pain to her. Even after all this time, Freddy is overcome with grief and pain, either drinking her sorrows away or by popping pills. On a minor note, I couldn't help notice they never specify what pills she takes, but from her seemingly permanent melancholy, I assume she's not popping ecstasy or methamphetamines. I mean, they'd perk you up a little bit, right? Regardless, it's not long before Freddy is overcome with the demons of her past, and in a particularly affecting moment, she drunkenly slashes her wrists in front of a portrait of her mother, both in a state of drunken madness, but also one of sad longing for the mother that she adored, and she ends up spending the majority of her screen time looking dreadfully haunted. Joe, by comparison, is the more steely-faced of the bunch, having buried her happy memories of the family and covered up any instance of trauma by either sleeping around or marrying several gentlemen. It's quite refreshing, however, that she's not slut-shamed by her portrayal in the film. She's quite modestly clothed, she doesn't act with particular lasciviousness, or display any of the tortured nymphomaniac tropes that later films of the 70s and 80s would employ. That's not to say that she's a perfectly pleasant character, however. She's certainly waspish and cold, even to her siblings, presumably from her washing her hands totally of her past. There's one moment of tenderness when Alex finally convinces her to attempt to say goodbye to Freddy, and her veil of coldness is briefly lifted, with her wishing her unreachable elder sister a goodbye and embracing Chris before she leaves. Her hankering of Elizabeth at the dinner table, however, though, is rather poor form, and for a Christmas dinner it certainly doesn't hold much cheer or goodwill. Then we have Benjamin, one of the more irredeemable characters in the film. Not only is he hateful towards his wife, but upon seeing his daughters for the first time in what's clearly been a long period of time, he proceeds to chastise each one of them quite personally, only to then ask them to commit murder for him. His claims of being poisoned by Elizabeth are subtly hinted to be nothing more than a delusion, especially as it's revealed midway that Ted had checked out Benjamin upon Elizabeth's request, leading to Chris formulating her theory that Elizabeth is in fact innocent. It was more pronounced in the original script, but it's hinted that there's nothing wrong with Benjamin at all, and that he's simply dying of old age. This only serves to portray him as a stubborn ignoramus, who'd rather blame his wife for a problem that is simply part of nature. This masculine arrogance and its effect on the women around him is a big theme that the film portrays. With the exception of the incidental police characters and the lovely Ted, the male characters in the film are the cause of most of the female characters' troubles. Benjamin is in fact the one who had an affair on his previous wife, the mother of Alex, Freddy, Joe and Chris, and as a result, their mother committed suicide. While Benjamin would rather focus on the fact that their mother had some mental illness and eschewing any responsibility of his own due to his infidelity, it's hard not to see the same ailments arising within Freddy, who's clearly taken a mental blow because of the whole furore. Joe has become distant and caustic, unable to maintain a positive relationship with the men in her life, leading to several heartbreaks and failed marriages. The anger is so large, she even declares that she was loath to come back to the house, even to see her father's coffin close. Since Chris was so young at the time, and has seemingly escaped any sort of consequence as a result of her father's actions, she's noticeably one of the only female characters to have a positive interaction with men, namely Ted, whom she has a crush on. Arguably, Elizabeth is the one who suffered the most. Not only has she been subject to rumours surrounding her own deceased husband's death, but she's also blamed by her fellow women as the reason for Benjamin's ailing health. 
the patriarch of the family has successfully supplanted his own blame onto the women around him, and instead of relocating that blame elsewhere, they instead turn on his wife, believing his every whim that she's actually a cunning murderess. Benjamin's focus on his own masculine immunity from blame is also reflected in the fact that he refers to his daughters by masculine names. Their real names are Alexandra, Frederica, Joanna and Christine, but he refers to them as the more gender-neutral or masculine names of Alex, Freddy, Joe and Chris. This is also a reference to something Freddy says that seems to indicate that Benjamin was unfaithful because he believed their mother could never bear him a son. If this is the case, it would certainly explain Benjamin's now current hatred of Elizabeth. She too was not giving him a son, and due to his age now, this will never come to pass. He cannot even regain the trust of his daughters without placating them first with the money from his inheritance, which certainly goes a long way to showing he's not emotionally invested, rather than he is financially. It almost has whisperings of a gentleman's agreement, like, I'll give you your inheritance if you help me kill my wife. A rather sad reflection of his lack of emotional attachment is Elizabeth's line about Freddy's addictions. I suppose drinking a little too much is better than going a little too mad. As is the case with many situations in real life, you get the impression that in the Morgan household, the worst thing that can happen to a woman here is for a man to brand her crazy. The Morgan's mother had committed suicide due to her madness, Freddie's already been categorised as unstable, and Elizabeth is both attributed unstable behaviour by her husband, stepdaughters and the townspeople, with her even mentioning that she's been placed in an asylum in her past. This moves on quite nicely to Alex, the revealed killer of the film, who attempts to kill all of her sisters in order to completely sever her family connections. After their mother's death, Alex has clearly taken on the role of motherhood, and tries in vain to keep the family together, only to have failed dismally as it's revealed the sisters left the family home many years ago, vowing never to come back. She takes that spirit of Christmas and makes a wish to be free of this unfair burden unplaced on her, especially as it's due to the machinations of her father. Murder and violence is a rather masculine-tinged approach to a problem, and it's almost as though Alex has to become as ruthless and as conniving as Daddy in order to really be free from her responsibilities. Due to the excellent performance by Eleanor Parker, this switch from care to malice is achieved quite realistically, and after seemingly knocking Chris to her death, Alex for the first time seems to be blissful and elated at finally being able to live her own life, and as a bonus, she gets to pin the murders on the woman she hates the most, Elizabeth. Unfortunately, it seems that the feminine madness is doomed to take over when she realises her plan has failed with Chris still being alive, and she becomes uncontrollably hysterical. Perhaps Benjamin's influence was stronger than she thought, and like her father, Alex too drove herself mad with her own shortcomings, failures, and the attempt to pin these on someone else. Like Joe says at the Christmas dinner, all men are paranoid, that's why eventually some of them get murdered. Which could be rephrased, really, as men are so desperate to shift their problems onto others that they tear themselves apart and others with them. All in all, Home for the Holidays is a must-see for horror film fans. While it's not explicit, it lacks a real body count as such and doesn't fit strictly into the slasher template, it's nonetheless extremely well-acted, packed with drama and interesting characters, and it really sets up some of those slasher elements that came to the fore in Black Christmas and Halloween. Amongst your showings of Gremlins, Krampus, Christmas Evil and Silent Night, Deadly Night, try and put on Home for the Holidays as well. It really deserves a place amongst the Yuletide horrors that are wheeled out every year. 
Main girl Chris was played by the very recognisable Sally Field, who'd started off in TV movies and shows before getting her big break in 1977's Smokey and the Bandit. She reappeared in the sequel, as well as Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, Punchline, Kiss Me Goodbye, Mrs Doubtfire, Forrest Gump and the two Amazing Spider-Man movies. Veteran actress Eleanor Parker had been in movies since the 40s, in stuff like Never Say Goodbye, Caged, Scaramouche and The Naked Jungle, but she's probably most recognisable by casual moviegoers as the Baroness from The Sound of Music. From the 70s onwards, she appeared in a lot of TV movies, such as Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, The Bastard, and She's Dressed to Kill. She sadly passed away in December of 2013 at the age of 91. Elizabeth was played by theatrical actress Julie Harris, uh, famed for her role as Eleanor in the 1963 horror film The Haunting. She also appeared in the 1964 version of Hamlet, A Voyage of the Damned, and The Bell Jar from 1979. Jessica Walter, who played Freddy, is most recognisable now for her role as Lucille Bluth from the TV comedy Arrested Development. But she had an extensive TV career in the 70s in stuff like Kiss Me Kate, Mission Impossible, Columbo, She's Dressed to Kill and Love American Style. Another veteran actor, Walter Brennan, played the unpleasant father Benjamin and it would be his final role as well before his death just a few years later in 1974. British actress Jill Hayworth played the role of Jo, who'd already cut her teeth in the horror genre with appearances in 1967's It, The Haunted House of Horror from 69, and Tower of Evil, which was done the same year as Home for the Holidays. Ted was played by character actor John Fink, who had a few sporadic appearances in things like The Bionic Woman, The Waltons, and even some motion pictures like Batman Forever, the much-maligned Batman and Robin, and Flatliners. Director John Llewellyn Moxie was born in Argentina to British parents, and after attending school, he served in the Second World War. After being discharged, he started an editing career before getting a directorial break in some episodes of London Playhouse and The Adventures of Tugboat Annie. But his first big success, however, came with his 1960 horror film, City of the Dead, which starred Christopher Lee, and he went on to have quite the prolific TV and theatrical movie career, with items such as Death Trap, Face of a Stranger, Strangler's Web, A Taste of Evil, The Strange and Deadly Occurrence, Nightmare in Badham County, Panic in Echo Park, Sanctuary of Fear, The Violation of Sarah McDavid, and Through Naked Eyes. By the way, if any viewers are actually interested in more TV movies, try to check out Amanda Reyes from Made for TV Mayhem. This is exactly her cup of tea, or cup of coffee, cup of joe, as she's American. But check that one out, she's on Twitter and Facebook as well. As mentioned before, writer Joseph Stefano was most famous for his work on the Alfred Hitchcock film Psycho. But he also worked on Eye of the Cat, A Death of Innocence, Snow Beast, The Kindred, and the 1990 TV movie Psycho 4, The Beginning. The film had four producers, one of which was Leonard Goldberg, who'd produced Blue Bloods, Unknown, Charlie's Angels, and Double Jeopardy, while another was Paul Younger Witt, responsible for The Golden Girls and the 1999 movie Three Kings. Aaron Spelling was also a huge influence, not just because he was the producer, but because his other work included Dynasty and The Love Boat, which accounts for some of the more soap opera-style shenanigans in the film. Finally, there was Tony Thomas, who also collaborated with Younger Wit on The Golden Girls. The music was composed by George Allison Tipton, who also composed the music for The Golden Girls and The Love Boat. Cinematographer Leonard J. South had previously worked on Buck Rogers in the 25th century, as well as TV movies Satan's Triangle, Hitchhike and Scream Pretty Peggy, 
while the editing was done by Alan Jacobs, who'd worked on both a mix of theatrical and TV releases like Blackula, Satan's School for Girls, Something Evil, Revenge for a Rape, Bug and Love at First Bite. Now, unfortunately, Home for the Holidays never even got a theatrical nor a VHS release over here in the UK. There was a VHS version released in the US in the early 80s, and there was a reissue in 1991. So dedicated collectors and importers may have been able to get this one back in the day, but for general release, this film would have just bypassed the British public almost entirely. Which is a real shame, especially as the film still continues to have no true release over here. There's been a few DVD releases in the States, but I suspect that these are all locked to Region 1, and they're all in various states of quality. But alternatively, the entire film is also available on YouTube should you wish to see it. Now, although I don't condone piracy, if it's the only way to see something, what can you do, eh? And that's the end of the show for now, ladies, gentlemen, and any folks outside of those two. Hope you enjoyed it, and most importantly of all, I wish you the very best Christmas and a happy new year. The next episode will remain a mystery for now, but stay tuned as we've got a lot of video nasty DVD giveaways coming your way in the new year. So keep an eye out on our Twitter and Facebook pages to keep up to date on that. But other than that, happy holidays everyone, and I'll see you all in the new year. Bye for now! (laughs) 